So that sort of thing is interesting. You were programming comic books when you were growing up? Not necessarily programming comic books, but like there's a whole um, cartoon history of blah, blah, blah that you can buy that tell you a little bit about what you would study as a computer science person, like a computer architecture and other stuff, but is comics, which is, I don't know, I was a geeky child, so I enjoyed those quite a bit. They were a non-textbook introduction to computers, which I think at the time was kind of important. (laughs) Hi, and welcome to the Toronto Tech Podcast. This episode is a continuation of my discussion with digital security experts Nick, Brian, and Ofi. If you haven't heard part one of our discussion, don't worry. This episode stands on its own and frankly is a little more fun since the introductions are already done. We talk about the Starwood Hotel hack, we talk about hackers helping find missing people, and we talk about how much do people think their privacy is worth. There's a bit of head shaking in this episode and some good laughs too. We pick up exactly where we left off, talking about security of the Internet of Things. Here's episode seven of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Thirty, forty years ago. So let's talk about like what security tools you have (laughs) in your network. Yeah, Yeah. let's do it. Sorry. I think I shared enough. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for him to just close it off there. Uh, But inquiring minds want to know, Brian. The Vaughn's eye, they don't know if I want to tell you all the protections. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, like back back then when when computers were were first becoming a thing and they were becoming personal devices that people would, you know, slowly put into their homes, uh, you know, security was unheard of. No one was talking about it. The internet was built off of just no, get it done. People like, were yeah. totally talking about it. Just that right. it, it wasn't. It was more theoretical. In than the early not. '90s, when we were turning up like computers to the internet, there was no such thing as a firewall either. Like they were just computers on the internet. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was just had get it done, get it connected. Right. And by the real. way, every workstation had a publicly address, like, a public address. Like yeah, and I feel like that's what the IoT space is in right yeah. now. And until something big happens, or until there's wider adoption, we get past that you know early adopters phase. Um, are we going to start talking about realistic security policies and practices and frameworks around, you know, keeping these device patched, secure, uh, you know, built securely from day one and not so so it's it's a very interesting problem. I mean, uh, I'll disclose now that I'm very involved and invested in a company that does some IoT security stuff, (laughs) Uh, and they're doing essentially endpoint protection, so a micro agent that's. You know, using ML, which is a lot easier to do on a device that's not used by a person. Take my money. Stuff, right? <laughs> um, the consumer market is very different than your SCADA market, ICS market, which is a lot different than your, like if it's a $100,000 robot on a factory line that's the IoT device, there's more desire and budget to provide updates for it, etc. When I sell you a $30, $40 thingy, that you take home and it's a one-time sale, like that kind of IoT device, my desire to ever give you an update again (laughs) as a manufacturer of the device is pretty low, right? And so that's one of the functional things that hasn't really happened in, I don't think, IT security elsewhere. Like there's still generally a lot of things that get updates for at least the length of the product life. Mm -hmm. Like the, the IoT Barbie doll or whatever it is. They sold it to you. There's a new one next year. Why are they going to provide for more updates for the next 10 years of that then? And I think the the point partially is that for IoT devices, like half of the 
business model is that they want you to replace it next year. Absolutely. That's right. Right. Actually, I would say 100% of the business model is I want you to buy the new thing next year. Yeah, the 2.0 or 3.0 version. Right. So yeah. in that case, it's like, no, I'm not going to provide security updates. Are you crazy? Because I want you to buy the newest thing. Yeah. So if I'm telling you a medical device or, a, I don't know, a welder or something yes. that, that you have a clear expectation of a product life and an expectation of me as a manufacturer to support it for that product life. There's some hope in that space, I think, um, on the consumer space. I don't know what financial things are going to drive it until regulation or, or legislation starts to drive it. I mean, uh, the company I'm working with is called Cybeats. Like, I, I don't know how they're going to get to that space because it's just an increase. Like, If it costs any number of pennies per device to help add security to it, who's going to want to pay that? A lot different on, on a on a device where there's a more B2B and extended shelf life, mm -hmm. I, I think there, there'll, there'll be a demand from the customer and, and then, you know, the, the expectation that, yeah, when I sell this $10,000, $100,000 thing that I'll have to support it for some life cycle or have a maintenance agreement that supports it for some life cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be interesting to do some market research and see where that threshold is right now. Yeah, like if I sell you an elevator, it's an IoT device today, right? Like, mm -hmm. but mm, that's right. you're not expecting to replace your elevators in your building every year, right? That's mm -hmm. that's an IoT device that you probably have a 50 year plus <laughs> hope for. Uh, a robot on a manufacturing line, I don't know, maybe that's a 10 year expectation. Medical pump, I, I don't know, that's a three four, to five. five. Like, I don't know. Ideally for life, if it's if it's in there, if it's in you. That's a good point. If it's just something that gets wheeled around the hospital, like, you know, there's different life expectations. Yeah. You, you have um, to think about like something like that is like priceless to keep secure because you're talking about human lives. Yeah. That's right. Um, when you're talking about like a robot on an assembly line, you got to factor in how much did that robot cost? How long is that robot supposed to be functional for? Um, what would be the downtime if something were bad happened to that? And then you'd, you'd have to outweigh and offset that. But you'd have to do that kind of. Uh, calculation for literally everything on this planet because that's what's happening so i think the the whole idea of like risk management and prioritization applies in across the industry to iot as well as you should focus on this stuff that is gonna affect actual people's lives isn't like throwaway barbie dolls you just slap the sticker on it that says unless this thing that is barbie dolls on the same network as the medical pump Mm, and that's that, right. and that, that's where this all goes upside down, right? I, I was starting with the lifecycle expectation of, you know, the device and, and who's going to maintain it. And I think we can all agree that they want to sell you a brand new one next year. They're not going to maintain that. But if it's on the same network. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the whole like NetSec <laughs> guest Wi-Fi versus like yeah. corp Wi-Fi type thing, right? You want that zero thing, trust right? network. And that's why I like that you're focusing on the endpoint too, because that's, that's a, a great way to just be like, if I'm focused on the endpoint, I don't trust any of my neighbors, regardless if they're on the same network or if they're in a different subnet or even on the internet. And when you have that that endpoint level uh, visibility, if you're tying into like the kernel or whatever, it's even it's even better. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a fascinating space to think about where it's going to go. But but certainly, um, if you look at almost any enterprise network today, any home network, and you start scanning, the IoT devices will be the most vulnerable. And yeah, it's nice to say, oh, it's a NetSec problem. They should just isolate the network. No, no, no. Which I'm is, not saying that it's a NetSec problem. I'm saying largely what I do. But 
if you want to talk about protections, but, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's not a simple problem. I'm not saying it's a NetSec problem because like an AppSec person, I totally get like the whole AppSec security portion, but for things that are throwaway, like that bar, the IoT Barbie doll and the thing that you expect them to replace next year, it's sort of like, let's just isolate them in their own little space where things can just go like where, you know, it's going to all go wrong and then just call it a day. Right. Yeah. Because there is no, like those. So these devices are allowed to burn down the building. These devices. No, like you effectively lock them into a fireproof room, and then you go, "Okay, I'm done." Like, well, I how can I'm little Jimmy done. and Sarah play with the Barbie if it's locked in a room? And, and no one's fireproofing just the coffee pot in their kitchen, right? Yeah. There's a certain expectation it, that this device is not going space. to catastrophically fail. Yeah. Well, the coffee machine's life expectation is not a year either, right? So we're right. talking about like the yeah. thing that you buy your kid that they're going to throw out next year, or like. I'm just saying. But it's still floating around. Yeah. What about my security cameras? Because they're really upsetting me. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> right. And those are things that, you know, if you're going to buy four of them to put in your home, you're not going to want to, you might not want to shell out absolute top dollar because you're buying so many. Right. And they have a new model of that next year, but I don't want to replace them all annually. And those are all outside. But then that's when, <laughs> that's when you're going to go to, I don't know who sold you your cameras, but that's when you're going to go to them and say, Hey, your competitors are providing, you know, five years worth of updates, or, you know, yeah. for, for, for my previous, like my, my legacy cameras here. Um, it may seem, be consumer seem, education's seem, the answer. You yeah. might be onto something there, Nick. Like, yeah. Maybe that's it. <laughs> if you're a door-to-door salesman that can walk demand. up with an iPad and say like, Hey, I got into your camera feed really oh, easily. Yeah. Security is the, is the, probably the, the, the one thing, the one category that companies are either going to make or break it in 2019 where you're going to have competitors literally just outliving uh, other other companies because they just don't focus on security, where they're going to go down the Equifax route or they're going to go down you know, other big security breaches and they're just not going to be trusted anymore. They're going to have that loss of reputation and their products are going to be known as backdoored, infected, Does dirty devices. Does anybody here know if there's fewer bookings at Starwood now in the last few weeks? No, I didn't hear that. I'm asking. I don't actually know. <laughs> But I just, I'm just arguing that does a security breach necessarily, or are we just so numb now as We're consumers? To- totally not necessarily. I, I think this... Like, you so, know what I mean? Like, are, are you not going to book a Marriott now? Because they leave yeah. 500 million... Totally, you're still going to book a Marriott. That's the thing. Did you guys watch the... Did you guys go to right. B-Sides like the, and watch like, Ben's uh, talk on like how important is security? That was a fun one. Yeah. And there are like studies around just how... Don't know if we're all numb now. <laughs> I think it has to do with like psychology as well, right? There are studies around how people react to like natural disasters as opposed to somebody in your neighborhood dying. People take the somebody in your neighborhood dying a lot more seriously than they do like a whole country flooded because they just feel like that's that whole natural disaster is like outside of the scale of anything they could possibly do about it. So they put it out of their mind. But like Michael Jackson dies and suddenly there are candlelight vigils for like three weeks, right? <laughs> This is exactly how people react to security breaches. It's not new either. The bigger the breach is, the more people are just like, oh, well. And then they keep doing the same thing that they did before. But if you have like one tiny security breach, those few people are now really paranoid and all of their friends are really paranoid. You know what has done a lot for security lately? Ransomware. It, 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 you're, you're right. It certainly brought it to a lot more consumers top of mind. Like we had, we had like, oh, you know, 
the the what's it the SCADA devices and like the actual nuclear power plants were the the enriching devices were were had malware on them and that didn't make as big news as ransomware you get reporters showing up to all sorts of things going is that ransomware like for everything right and that's all they like that's the buzzword that they're using and it's not even anywhere on on the scale of like seriousness for us but it's totally top of mind for like all the people because it's their their dog pictures Mm -hmm. like these are the things that, that make it personal. That make it personal. I, I mean, I, I still like this, the tact of consumer education because even if they are I getting do. numb, which was also, I guess, part of my, my argument, I, I think there's there's something to do there. I mean, I've got a very personal example just from very recently, like local ATV club, you're supposed to buy a permit to ride the trails, but they want everything emailed to them in plain text, like all your PII and then they put it into a spreadsheet, which mm-hmm. gets emailed around the administration. I was just like, I refuse to do that. Um, however, <laughs> I'm going to help you come up with a secure club management solution. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was, you know, my uh, I'll, I'll rebel and help you all at once. Um, but, but that's that's. Uh, uh, I think consumers are going to have to start demanding. It's easier when you're in a big business-to-business relationship and you're holding like the keys to a multi-million-dollar contract to demand it. But I think consumers on mass can start to make a difference. All right, so that's why I'm really, really interested—not um, necessarily from a consumer education standpoint, but from a like government standpoint on what GDPR is going to do. And I know people float that around a lot, but like, uh, yeah, there's there's some privacy demand there. Um, but if you create an insecure device. You know, is there really going to be a fallback for that if if your Barbie's insecure? Yeah, there's a privacy exposure there because somebody could listen into your house. Maybe is that going to be a GDPR claim or? No, I meant in terms of uh, whether or not governments taking or a group of like nationals taking specific stances on on global policy is going to result in anything useful in that regulatory Mm. space. It's going to be interesting to watch. I agree. It's right now, it just means I got to click OK to every time, every website that I, yeah, cookies. cookies are a thing. About cookies. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. that is. Guess the... what, Nick? Cookies are a thing. Yes. Did you know? Just kidding. tell me more. But I, I, I do get, I do get the point about consumer like education. I just sort of feel like that's very fuzzy still. So hmm. it, it's difficult to get there without government say, taking a stance on things and then telling people about their rights. Or vice versa. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. Um, I, I generally oppose government weighing in with legislation on technology because by the time they figure out how not to make it way worse, mm-hmm. um, it's moved on. I uh, agree. But on the flip side, without a regulatory need, many companies won't spend the extra three pennies, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's an interesting balance. I sort of see it as like um, the sex ed of technology. You kind of if you want to reach like that many people and make it semi-consistent, even if it's terrible, it's still better than the current situation, which is none or ad hoc. Um, So do we kind of need the government to step in to legislate something that is not 100% effective, but better than nothing? Yeah, I sort of think that's a policy like that could be reasonably okay. Yeah. Right. Because you need consistency more than like you can t- work on the value of the thing or the quality of the thing after it has consistency. 
to a degree. Like something like you can't release a device with known vulns and you should fix the like well-known well, vulns on yeah, it yeah. for so many years or something. Yeah, like there's there's going to be, there has to be a little bit of government oversight. It shouldn't be like the whole overarching, like oh, I it's going to control in, everything. Yeah. But so like if you look at like part. how a house is built, right, there are some like yeah. fire regulations. There's like some rules that are in place that, you know, builders need well, to There's a building to. inspector who comes yeah. and makes sure you but, follow them. Yeah. But at the same time, consumers, as, as as like I said, as it's become more, more prevalent, you're going to have these um, consumers that are going to walk into a house and they're going to just like try to open up that door they're going to try to like you know test that door handle and if it sounds shaky and plastic they're just not going to buy it and it's going to get to that point where people like yourself are going to become a lot more widespread and they're going to say no i'm not going to give my information out to this you know atv membership registration thing uh because it just sounds like a shaky house that's about to fall down i'm mm-hmm. not going to invest in this thing. i'm not going to buy it because uh, i know better and right now, consumers yeah, don't know. The better. problem is, I'm not allowed to ride. The municipality will find me for riding with them, which is even crazier. But, but at the same time, yes, like um, for the stuff that the consumers don't understand, they don't know about. Like you know, most consumers, they they've you know, when it comes to like buying a house, like they just expect that the builder built it in a somewhat fire resistant manner, so that it's not going to just completely combust if there were a small little fire somewhere. Uh, and they kind of look to governments to make sure that the builders are held responsible and accountable for that. But if you buy a house with no lock on the front door, you can't cry to the government saying, they they sold me an insecure house. Like, you do something about it. And the government's going to, you know, sit down on it for like 10 years before they regulate something like that. And next thing you know, now everyone's getting through the, you know, unlocked windows, right? Like, consumers just have to... I'm not going to say they have to, but there, there's going to be a slow trend of people that are going to be a lot more security conscious, and that's going to drive market decisions. Uh, and, and some companies are going to fall out, and some are going to do really well. There's going to be that premium service of super secure IoT devices, and it's going to be that white glove treatment that people are going to pay a lot for. And, and I think you could sell it not on security, but just on if you buy our consumer device like you'll be able to use it for like a little longer than you will the competitors. And yeah. maybe it's a three-year promise, right? But it's something. Yeah, I more think that it's going to be eventually the amount of chaos that happens is going to outweigh the convenience factor. And people are going to be like, why doesn't my device work? And then they're going to go to more secure platforms. Yeah. I mean, then you're going to look at the Joneses across the street and you'll be like, why does their coffee machine not spontaneously combust <laughs> that sort of thing but like right? even just um like people are switching people are switching first time to- i don't get my morning coffee it's over <laughs> <laughs> rampage right tearing out those cameras <laughs> but yeah like people i know who are not at all security conscious or like i'm get like my computer is too slow to play the games that i want to play so i've switched to an apple and that has made it better and they're like that's because you don't have malware on your machine anymore, but that's cool, right? <laughs> um, so they're making an unconscious decision because convenience is and, and like usability is actually somewhat impaired. And I, that's what I think is going to happen is we're going to get enough chaos with people who are out there Amen. doing silly exactly. things yep. um, that affect mass numbers of devices because it's so convenient that they're all the same yep. like piece and, of and thing. During that time, the government's going to get involved because people are going to be calling up their MPs and stuff. And the answer is capitalism will solve it. Well, <laughs> ching baby, ching. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Capitalism so, drives quite a bit of random things. So, so it sounds like human behavior, like consumer behavior, is going to be a push. 
But does that come from basically the world of hacktivists or just regular people who are, you know, taking over these devices for their own purposes? No, no, not even, not even. It's just going to be natural selection. The, the, the insecure IT, IoT device is also going to be the unreliable IoT device. I put my money on it. Eventually. It's going to be It's going to be that IoT device that's going to just shit the bed. And it might not even be a security thing. And consumers will realize that and they will start moving on to the, the constantly patched, the constantly updated, the, the, the premium devices. So it's not going to be just the hacktivists. It's not going to be the, the hacker groups, the organizations, the, the, the botnets that are going to you know, cause consumers to move into a different direction. I'm telling you, it's going to be just natural selection. It's just going to happen. Now, in fairness, Sonos did patch the phone. They do provide <laughs> updates. <laughs> Good nice little know. plug there. Good how much know. how much did they give you for that one? <laughs> no, I, just, yeah, I called them out, but they did patch it. It's one of the IoT devices that you know you can still expect updates for. <laughs> yeah, good, good. That's good that some companies are doing that, and and some companies are you try to get a hold of them to tell them that, that they've got uh, vulnerabilities in their system, and you can't even reach them. Yeah, or they'll try to sue you. Yeah, or they'll try to sue you. That's right. Since two thousand four. OWASP has been periodically releasing a list of top 10 security risks, formerly security vulnerabilities. And injection has become a top risk since to, in 2007, and it's just been in one of the top two since then. Why do you think, despite all the publicity and awareness, injection is still the biggest security concern today? Uh, so they're mostly like web application vulnerabilities. They're, they're actually web application vulnerabilities. And injection is hard. Right. So that category encompasses like so many different kinds of things that it's Yeah, like a whole like a whole bunch of things. Like injection's <laughs> yeah. huge. It's huge. It's OS command, it's it's SQL, it's it's, it's yeah. basically wherever you can put user input in and it gets interpreted by something, that's injection. Right. So it's really, really interesting in a in terms of like field, just because like there's like lots of command line utilities that were meant for like batch processing of things by a single dude doing things to things that they built themselves are now being put on the internet and attached to a command like attached right. to an input right. field. Right. So it's really hard because that software was meant for a specific use case. And if you aren't sufficiently paranoid about what that use case was and do some of the some of the looking ahead of time and put a little bit like a some kind of check in front of it like do input validation which is hard um, or do input type validation which is also very very hard because some of the specifications allow a bunch of things that they really shouldn't for things like images which are very classic like uh, attack vector there's not a heck of a lot you can do about that. They're like sufficiently paranoid. It doesn't buy you everything. You also have to be supply chain paranoid, which is way beyond the scope of what you're able to deal with. So there's like that portion of things. And then there's also just computers are really bad sometimes at telling what is data and what is not data in the current setup that we have with computers. Like we've introduced a whole bunch of things that we took out of computing for convenience back into computers to help differentiate between like data and instructions which is not a non also non-trivial because it's all zeros and ones at the end of day so when you have injection type issues this is really the main thing is you can't tell instructions from data in a useful way and then you end up passing it to something that interprets it as as actual 
code, like instructions. As instructions. Yeah. Right? We're bad at it. We're bad at making computers that do it. The computers are genuinely just doing what they're told, and we're not very good at one trying to figure out like the best possible way of making things convenient for ourselves by reusing utilities and also like that portion of just like it's bad in computers period so now you have like all these other things built into um computers to do like address randomization and things like that to make injection harder or actual exploits of it but the central problem is the same right computers can't tell we have to tell them we do a lousy job of telling them or we don't check um, accordingly because we don't have control or have exhaustive ability to check all the possible inputs. And then we have specifications for things that are not very user-friendly and then sort of blows up in your face. Like you do have a bunch of confluence of factors towards why injection is continuously a problem and probably will continuously be one. That was, that was really well said. Yeah. I, I agree fully to that. That was a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Welcome to 10 years of explaining cross-site scripting. Thank you. 10 years of experience is worth something. There you go. That was That's, rather concise. I like that. Yeah, you should yeah. write a book on that. <laughs> I, really, I really like that. was really insightful. We, we've captured it now. We'll, we'll be able to transcribe it. And yes. You can just For all future generations. Here you go. Yes. That goes all Teach future to our consulting gigs. This I'm is why I say... That I like, yeah, yeah. I, I joke about my side job being AppSec interpretive dance, and this is exactly it. It's like <laughs> explaining the OWASP top 10 in like these types of terms because I've been doing it for 10 years. You, you would hope that by now I'm okay at it. Yeah. And for those of you not in the room, she is flailing her arms around. She is yeah. doing like all of the things to, to make us uh, understand all of this. Well, really well said. Thank you. Really great. I'm always curious with people that I interview. Who, especially if they've been in the industry a very long time, what was the very first thing that you guys worked on? The first project that you undertook that really got you excited about computers, as it might have been called back then? Uh, on a Commodore 64 to write games because I couldn't afford to buy them. That <laughs> <laughs> <Not> far ago. <laughs> very nice. Or, or we're knocking over BBSs because I had too much time on my hands. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I'm going to go with the, with the games route. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, no, for myself. Um, Lots of poking and peeking around that Commodore 64 memory. <laughs> ad. No, I, I, I've always been... Commodore uh, 64 might be before his time, Brian. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, for, for myself, like, uh, it was really easy for me because I wasn't fully immersed in, 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 uh, in computers and in programming. You know, we were, we were talking about robotics beforehand. Uh, I actually studied mechanical engineering, drafting and design from Sheridan College. And it was because of the robotics program in my high school that I went into that field. Um, so I, I worked in, in a couple of uh, engineering firms. And uh, it, it got to the point where I'm just one of those guys that I really like to have something work. And I like to automate something in order to make me do less work. So I'm writing these drawings. I'm doing them all manually. I'm taking these calculations and I'm and I'm making these drawings for manufacturing to build. And it got to the point where I was like, I'm just making small little tweaks here and there. And uh, it wasn't uh, too long for me to say, all right, let's pull up, you know, Professor YouTube and find out how to, how to code. And uh, I wrote a little bit of Python to automatically generate some of these drawings for me. And uh, it made my job easier. I could, I could just, 
fool around on, on, on YouTube a lot longer, learning other things, not watching cat videos, um, you know, at, at this engineering firm and just, you know, being able to automate a lot of my work was something that, you know, I absolutely fell in love with computers. And, and from that point, uh, it was, uh, it was no, no looking back. So that's pretty much like the first project in, in sort of computers, um, in the, in the security realm, it was, uh, it was probably when, uh, I took development into more of the, the DevOps approach. And when you get into DevOps, that's where, you know, you, you get sort of confronted with, with infrastructure now, and now you got to start worrying about security and deployment and the stuff you're building is now going to run for longer than just a few hours while you build it. Uh, it's going to be running for, for weeks on end. So you want to build something inherently more secure. And, uh, I guess like for me, it was when I just checked like my, my server logs and I just saw like all these random IP addresses hitting these, these, these URL endpoints for me. And I was like, what, what are these guys trying to do to my, my beloved application? <laughs> and, uh, Why would anybody uh, want to hurt me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it was at that point where I was just like, there's yeah. a whole world out there that you, that you just don't understand. And, you know, when, when that gets confronted with me, I just, I, I dive right into it. So I guess it was like that point for, for myself. Welcome to AppSec. Your baby's broken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Why is my application using 99% of the CPU for the last six hours? Oh, it's bot scanning for other vulnerable devices on the internet. I should turn this off. Exactly. <laughs> Ophie, what about you? Uh, okay. So that's a weird question because to be honest, like computers is not my like calling, which is interesting, but I grew up like with a lot of tech people. So a lot of people that I know are engineers or like computer science PhDs and whatnot. So that's sort of like, if you can think about, I am sort of middling to low end, like technical capability in my, some of my sphere, uh, lots of other people are like PhDs in computer science from a while ago and you're sort of like okay well you guys are talking about things I don't really understand but you know um, back when I was a kid my dad would go to the computer lab at three o'clock in the morning to like play with networks and I would like I would see him at his computer like every day working on his thesis and stuff like this or I'd like fall asleep at the computer lab or whatever with my parents I think maybe once or something like this but like when you grow up with that it's sort of obvious that computers is a possible career choice and then um also it's pretty obvious it was pretty obvious growing up that computers was going to be a very very big like area so no matter what I thought going into university and going into high school I was like I'm capable of doing the work and I'm not computer illiterate so I'm going to go do that because that kind of will open up the doors to every possible area that I could possibly be interested in so going into computers was really a like technical feasibility type thing and also just a competence like I'm not great with computers but I'm also not terrible which is a surprising thing in this industry that you can find people who are really terrible with technology. Like I'm hitting the probably better than 60% just by not being terrible or being like reasonably competent, which is really sad, but like that's where we're sort of at. Um, but I find the, indus the industry very interesting. Like it's a very challenging industry. It's very, it's full of different like areas that you can get into. You can spend a lot of time doing things that are very impactful to a lot of different people. And uh, it's a really good use of like my skill set, both on the, like I like to write things. So documentation is something that people hate and I don't mind it. So that works out well for me. 
Um, I'm a woman in an industry that is very male-dominated. That works out somewhat in my favor quite a lot of the time. It's what you make of it. Um, and then from a like skill sets perspective, okay, I'm in a part of the industry that like plays very well to my strengths and is useful and, like I said, is challenging. So I enjoy it, but it is not really my calling. I wouldn't say I got into it thinking like, oh, I'm going to go into computers because I love computers. It's sort of like, I'm going to go into computers because that is a very logical choice, right? I'm going to do well in it and I'm going to be useful in it. And it, I won't have to worry about where my next paycheck is going. And I will find lots of things to do with this skill set, right? So anything that I want to do now I can find a way to use computers to do it. So that was very, in very, very... In literally every industry. In right literally every, every industry. industry. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go into biology. I don't know if I want to study this other thing. I don't know if I want to study, like, this part of medicine. I don't know if I want to go, like, pet dogs for a living. But I'm sure, I'm sure that by the time I graduate from university, there will be a way to make money applying computers to that job, right? So that's why I took it. And then uh, specifically security, I actually started in security research, except that I didn't exactly start in security research. I started as a tech writer for a security research team. And then I used that time to do a bunch of research uh, about like network protocols and stuff like this. And then I went into security research that way, kind of through a side channel, and then got hired into a consulting team. And she team. pretends she doesn't know NetSec, eh? Really? <laughs> well, I'm not bad with computers, and I don't waste my time, right? So, uh, so totally that part uh, was just like I started in consulting, doing pen testing, and that was fun. It was interesting because you could use the kind of the software development background and the um, application security part, learn new things, um, talk to different people. It was cool, but I actually like a lot of what I'm doing now. I like. Um, slightly more constructive work. So I build programs for people instead of doing pen testing. I think I, if I hadn't started in like a more program level type thing, I might have gone back to development or doing something else that was slightly more constructive. I feel like going to people and telling them like your baby's broken all the time, it gets a little bit old. Uh, and it keeps running into walls and just not, <laughs> not, not working very it's well. Not yeah, let's, 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 stop, let's stop, stop running into this wall and we'll be... In better shape, right? So yeah. it's fine. The one's next one's gonna version two is gonna come out next year. No, Yay. I want baby upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I just wanted to play games. <laughs> any any particular games? I think the first game I wrote was a very simple squish. Em. A little guy goes across, and you have to squish the ball so fly by or something really oh, simple. Nice. There was no YouTube. There was no internet. Archie and like Gopher weren't even invented. Like it was, <laughs> it was magazines that you got that showed sample code, <laughs> and you Ooh. went from there. <laughs> oh gee! <laughs> so I'm like by far the oldest at this table by some margin, <laughs> and I literally like moved based on where Rogers was starting their like internet cable modem pilot. We should totally start up like a kids Just so magazine I could get fast like that. Internet. Like, what's a that? kids magazine with intro We should totally start up like, a kids magazine like that because, like, I feel like National Geographic, like when I was a kid, really helped a lot with like getting me interested in that sort of biology thing. And all of those like kids magazines for computer stuff is 
yeah, like gone now away. there's a million sources mm -hmm. for sample source, right? But then even if you found sample source printed somewhere, you had to type it all in yourself and you kind of learned it whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a long time ago. If nothing else, your typing skills improved. <laughs> no, I definitely yeah. like that idea. The magazine for kids. I, I would say even let's start even sooner and just do uh, full on coloring books. Yeah, that would be cool. There you go. There's like uh, when I code. when I grew up, the color all the bits you want to turn on. There were comic books on these things that were really kind of fun. So that sort of thing is interesting. There were programming comic books when you were growing up. Not necessarily programming comic books, but like there's a whole um, cartoon history of blah 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 that you can buy. Um, that is by I think Larry Gonick and. That was something that was interesting because there's like a cartoon guide to the history of the universe. And then there's also like cartoon guides to like physics and computers. And they tell you a little bit about what you would study as a computer science person, like a computer architecture and other stuff, but is comics, which is, I don't know. I was a geeky child, so I enjoyed those quite a bit. They were a non-textbook introduction to computers, which I think at the time was kind of important. <laughs> Nowadays, it's all like, oh, we're going to teach you. Well... Maybe not nowadays, but like four years ago, it was like, I'm going to teach you how to make your own mods in Minecraft. Yeah. And that was oh the biggest God. thing. That's what the kids want. They, yeah. like That's we, still a big thing. It yeah. really is, yeah. If, uh, if, you, or if you release like a, like a tablet app or an app on a phone, like mm -hmm. the kids are going to play with it. If you release like one that's like intentionally insecure or, you know, they, they can customize it themselves. They can, they can break it. They can change the whole app title if they wanted to. I feel like that's something that they would gravitate a lot more to. Cause I don't know of any kids these days that read magazines. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But the Minecraft mod scene, you're right. I think there's a yeah. lot of kids who've gotten into it because they played the base game and they thought, oh, this game would be amazing if I could just add this one thing to it. But yeah. Usually they download somebody else's mod and then they, they download another mod and they're like, I still can't find the mod that does exactly what I want. That, at that point, they've got a few samples to build off of. Yeah. And, and they just say, F it, we're doing live. Yeah, <laughs> right? like it's, it's, it's great learning. Like it's, it's, I've got kids in this age group. So. Yeah. That's the start. Um, it's like, I wonder what else I can get it to do. Yeah, it's all about just like having that platform out there and, and you know, in their face, you know, day to day. And they're going to they're gonna play with it. They're going to change it around. And uh, you got to give them the tools and the platforms to do that. Yeah, and at least what I do is I kind of divide their electronics time between I'm like, you, you can have very limited electronics time for consumption activities and then like maker type activities, you can have more electronics time. Because it, it, otherwise, you just sit there and watch like toy unboxing videos or something. <laughs> Those are absorbently popular. Oh my gosh. I just saw whoever, whichever kid's making $22 million this year doing that. Yeah, I saw that. Like, Holy cow. He, he must be really selling it. <laughs> Seven years old and making 22 million bucks. Wow. I'm doing the wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I need to unbox toys. <laughs> <laughs> so some of you guys recently had community events within the last uh, couple of weeks, actually. Can you talk briefly oh. about uh, what kind of content gets shown off and what the, what the feeling is at these events? I'll start out. So our last event, we covered memory forensics, which was like a nice intro to how to do it and, and showing off some of the tools for it. And then we had another forensic expert just share some more stories, like stories from the field. Uh, and both those those talks is probably why we we're over 200 this year. It was 
uh, you know, I guess our second most popular event this year. Um, because people tend to like war stories and tool talks because then they can actually take something away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big event for us, which is when most user groups shut down, is actually August. And the reason for that is we do a Black Hat DEF CON besides Las Vegas like roll up uh, of uh, we get the members who go to talk about the one or two talks that they saw that they thought were most interesting and what they learned from that. And uh, So if, if you go to like one task event a year, like that's the task event that will cover somewhere between like 15 to 30 different topics. And everybody <laughs> goes to it. Yeah. And so that's, that's generally a pretty huge thing. I mean, that kind of things would be fun to do else, you know, at other times during the year, but that one's, we were talking earlier about how hard it is to get one or two speakers like lined up for a, an evening event. Try lining up like a dozen to 15 speakers for a night. It's, it's definitely an, uh, an activity of herding cats, right? So a lot of busy people. It turns out the security space has a few busy people in it. <laughs> the better the people are, the busier they are too. So, um, so that's a once a year event um, that's always very popular. Yep. Yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons why none of us have events. It's like both people are going to various kinds of conferences and then they all go to task and they're like, We're, I'm done this this month. I can't do anything else. Otherwise, <laughs> my significant other or my cat is, is going to either kill me or, or like something else, right? I'm going to be sleeping on the couch forever. And I go, oh, okay, I got it. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff uh, we've been uh, launching in, in, in DC416, uh, uh, in September, we we actually had uh, one of the founders of the, the the Tor browser, the Tor network, actually oh, cool. come by and and talk to the whole cool. crowd about uh, you know privacy and in the age of you know big surveillance here. So that was really awesome to have uh, him come down. Wow. Um, we also had uh, you know another talk around detecting attacks using machine learning and how to you know how to do it from a you know a very practical standpoint and not from a, a theoretical one. Um, we also in in July did uh, the first ever OSINT CTF uh, revolving around finding information on missing people in, in Canada. And it was a uh, it was a beta CTF for the big uh, DEF CON one that was happening uh, earlier this year. And uh, that one was, was crazy. We partnered with the RCMP, the Ontario Provincial Police, the Toronto Police, and we had a bunch of judges come forward. And we literally put together this brand new platform uh, with a bunch of missing people cases from Canada within like the last 10 years, roughly within a certain age range. We weren't going to go, you know, back like 50, 60 years ago because we wouldn't really have much internet information about certain individuals. And we just said, here are some cases. Here's how um, we're structuring the CTF. We partnered with, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, he's, he's out of uh, Vancouver. Oh, well, the, the name will come, will come to me. But he, he came up with this idea and he was like, here's my, my scoring scheme. If you can find out what the person wore on the last day or if you found a picture of them from a security camera feed or from a Facebook post or whatever, you get this, this many points. If you can find um, who they were with on the day of you know, where they went missing or if you can get information about um, their last location, anything. It could be a Facebook post, a picture whatever you guys can find in the open web and not in private sort of uh, channels um, is, is fair game. And you guys just submit that information and uh, the judges will look through it and they'll actually see whether or not it looks relevant. And you guys aren't just trolling with like cat pics. 
Um, and then they'll <laughs> take that information and they'll actually um, award you some points on it. And then we formatted all that information and gave it to the local authorities involved, whether it was from a provincial level, municipal level, or a federal level. And uh, the event with, went without a hitch. Like people absolutely loved it. Um, they wanted to, you know, revive it and have another one uh, occur. And the feedback that we gave the mothership down in Vegas was was perfect for them. They were able to have their event run a lot more smoothly because we ran through the beta. We, we were saying people are, are giving us so many pieces of information in regards to, you know, what the person looked like from news feeds, from stuff that, you know, probably law enforcement and, and people that are trying to find these people already know. Um, so you should probably bring down the scoring value of that a little bit, a little bit more. So we were able to kind of tune the CTF a little bit for them. Uh, but that was something that, that we did uh, earlier this year that people, you know, really, really liked. I, I had heard about that and a couple of people who participated really enjoyed it. Do you know if any of that information was like successful, successful? in finding? Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I'm not going to go into too much detail of it, but you just say um, there was some success. <laughs> there was some success. So there was two cases in which we provided some valuable information that the that law enforcement did not did not know. And one of the cases, we actually found the guy and he was, he just moved out. And in, in these cases, it isn't just because someone just went missing, but they will be labeled as missing, but they just might want to leave from one province to another because they're a person of interest in a certain case. And so they're just trying to dodge or get around a, uh, some sort of uh, issue. Um, you know, I don't, I don't claim to know what, what those are, but um, we actually was able, we were able to find like real information about, you know, an actual case and well, not me or, or anything, but like the, the, the people, the participants mm -hmm. involved. And that's something that was just, you know, groundbreaking. And we, we were part of like a, a motherboard did an article spread on us saying, you know, hackers help find missing people. And, you know, that was, that was amazing, especially in the time when, you know, the Toronto police have been kind of. Uh, scrutinized over some of the uh, missing people cases that we had down in like uh, in the in the gay district here um, with that uh, serial killer that that we oh, were right. uh, yeah. having the the police got a really bad rap so um, them sort of coming forward and wanting to actively partner with us and actually giving some of their detectives part of like the c3 division uh, for the day to be a judge was was huge because we showed them from like a hacker's perspective and from a developer's perspective, how we would organize and categorize this information from like a object oriented programming into a really organized database that could be easily searched against because these judges were receiving, you know, close to like a thousand uh, submissions of information per, per, per minute. Like these guys were using automated scrapers, bots against our API in our submission portal, which is flooding us data. So we had to think about ways that we we're going we're to build a, like an automated judge, an automated judge that will actually go in, receive the URL that they posted as the source of information, and then scrape that URL to first validate that that information is on there, that it's related to that case that they submitted against, and have this automated judge actually detect whether or not this is a high or low confidence piece of information. And this is something that we could literally build a, an application that could be used around the world for... Um, missing purpose, uh, missing people's, uh, you know, submission information database systems. Right, and that's about um, software people and hackers getting connected in an industry that they might not otherwise have any exposure to. Mm -hmm. 
and vice versa. You know, the law enforcement might not think, hey, I should get a bunch of, uh, get a machine learning model or get a classifier or get something to help me weigh my pieces of input to see if they're valuable or relevant. Um, but once you have, once you sit down and build this, and how, what was the duration of this event? Uh, so it was a full day event, uh, but the preparation was was huge. We we, we probably prepared yeah, for this for for like three weeks, maybe a month. Um, I was like, I took it upon myself to build the entire backend system myself. Uh, so that that was it was it was so much fun to just make sure that everything was running smoothly. People were trying to like throw in SQL injection attacks. Like even though it was totally against the rules, they were just doing whatever they can to try to get points. Um, and just to see it like stand up for that, the whole thing. That is thing. something hackers tend to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I fully expected it to. So that's why... You, know, you would have been disappointed hard. otherwise. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to just take it upon myself. I didn't want to like go to any of my like junior volunteers and just say, hey guys, like build this. Um, so I, I personally was invested in building the backend system for the submission because it was just being hammered. So that was about three weeks to a month uh, just to prepare for the amount of information that we were going to get, as well as work with the different law enforcement agencies to, um, you know, make sure that the style in which we were going to give them this information was in the format that they wanted. Uh, and I think we, we did a good job with, you know, showing them exactly like how we organized the information and how we were able to process through it so quickly. And they kind of had a lot of key takeaways that they brought back to their their sergeants and, and deputies, et cetera. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So relatively very boring. We had an intro to pen testing like a uh, presentation, which I think lots of people are interested in right now. Like pen testing is... Um, yeah, the, like the intro, intro to app, app testing that Chuck did at Sector yeah. was one of the most popular ones. So many people, because I think pen testing is such a well-known profession now, comparatively speaking, people are like, how do I become a pen tester? So it was really, really well attended, done by two of my colleagues uh, from Security Compass and... They just went over like general methodology and things like that and then did a quick demo. And it was probably, sadly, it was probably one of the best attended and the most like questions session that we've had all year, which is a little bit disappointing for as an organizer perspective, because I'm like, guys, be more, be more interactive for all of the sessions. Right. Okay. But I was um, just say, in intro twos often do well. Yeah. Again, if somebody's going to give up their evening to go to something. They're generally wanting to learn something that they don't know, because mm -hmm. if it's something that's part of their day job, they could probably get daytime <laughs> to go learn that or or funding to go learn it. So I, I find that those are really well attended. Mm -hmm. People are looking to broaden their their knowledge. Yeah, and, yeah. and you and you tend to attract a, a wider audience too. You get a lot of the the people that are willing to kind of dip their toe into the security realm. Uh, so people that might not even know what pen testing is, and yep. they'll just kind of say. Well, you know, if I it's an intro, yeah. if it's an intro, then I don't need to be an expert or at least have any kind of prerequisite mm -hmm. it's knowledge. It's less intimidating, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they just come in there and they're, they're looking to, you know, you know, have fun, meet some people. And I always, you know, love those intros and I love how, you know, it gets so many people. Uh, so like, I'm really glad that those are things that you're, you're definitely doing over at uh, OWASP. Yeah. It tends to vary between like very the different aspects of AppSec all the way around. Like one of the sessions we had was about requirements and one of them was about actually soft skills, which was funny. Um, and then we had some other sessions, like the first session in the year was 
like I mentioned earlier, um, us talking about how to get into AppSec, and then it goes all over the place. Yeah, cloud, say, not cloud. Generally, once your task will do something around both careers and soft skills. Mm-hmm. Those are also very well attended. I don't know if you guys have done anything around that yet, but it turns out no matter how clever you are, if you can't communicate it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of people who are <laughs> looking for like education in that area to send people to. Yeah. And I feel like that yeah. should be something I spend some of my copious free time, my copious free time mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about you guys, but when I look at like the demographics of DC 416, I'm finding that there's an overwhelming majority of, of students and really, really young people that, that attend all of our, all of our talks. And Which is great. yeah, if there's one yeah. thing that I'm looking forward to promoting and pushing in 2019 is almost have DC 416 act as a service. Uh, for junior researchers and security professionals that that want to take a, a passion or a topic in the security field and do an international trip of you know giving this talk out at DEFCON at, at B sides you know at places in, in Germany and in Europe and the service that I want to kind of provide with DC four one six is just a a simple little feedback platform where you're amongst friends people that you you know you hang out with you go to the bar with you grab pizza with. And here you are talking about some research. It might be complete. It might be pending. Uh, you might just need some inspiration or someone to help you out with. And just give a little talk about you know what you're working on at home. It could be as simple as this is my malware lab and this is what I'm building at home with my ESXi server or whatever it is. And if you give that talk and you're willing to give some sort of an informal talk with you know maybe one or two slides, you can then have an open feedback discussion with the audience. Uh, where they'll actually provide you with recommendation on, hey, that, that was actually a really cool subject. I'm really, you know, uh, interested in it. Uh, I would love to see a demo. Like, can you show me something hands-on? Or can you provide me a VM that I can download from from your website or from your Twitter account or whatever? And providing that service for that individual, that young individual who wants to become a speaker, who wants to really hone and sharpen their skills in, in public speaking is something that I think... Uh, Defcon as as a, as, a, as a group could help out with the the junior Toronto talent here, provide to to the international community. Interesting. Yeah. Something we haven't done yet, but uh, something I'm definitely playing around with that idea. We've done um, at Task. We've had uh, students come and present like their capstone research project, and and at both at the end where they're like, "This is what I did," but. More more times we've done it because we've done it a few times at the start where they're like, "This is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm looking for feedback and a mentor." Uh, and it's it's interesting to the group because they're like, we give the kids like ten minutes each to go pitch their idea for their research project, and then hopefully somebody in the audience will step forward and help them, which which has worked a reasonable percentage of the time. But even for the audience, it's like. 10 minute talk. So if you're bored by one topic, you 10 minutes in before you hit the next one. Yeah. And and there's like some of them have some pretty interesting things that they're researching. So there's just, I guess five or six schools. I can't remember um, that like in the GTA that are, are running security programs that we can all could probably connect with more. Yeah. Like uh, after this, I'm definitely going to hit you up about that and, <laughs> you know, get some contacts. I want to have like as many schools as possible be a part of it because I find that, you know, students now these days, like when they study, and they're they're just approaching you know their final exams and they're just completing their school life. It's kind of like a big question mark for what's the next step? How do I get a job? How do I uh, become effective in this field? And you know aligning the professors and you know the schools with giving them a 
a segue into the professional space and into communities like like ours is something that uh, the students would absolutely go crazy for and absolutely uh, need. Yeah, so we, we've got contacts at all the schools. Happy to make the intros. Perfect. Okay. Uh, we've gone over most of what I have down. I wanted to plug haveibeenpwned.com because a lot of people don't know about that site. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's such a double-edged sword. <laughs> well, well, it's not actually exposing the information. That would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was happening until earlier this year. Um, was it? What was it? So, but I thought, but, but, but so back to, the, back to the point, that idea, like, so have, have I been pwned is a great public service. It's free. Troy Hunt runs it. It's great. You can put in your email address there and it'll tell you if you were in any of the data dumps. It just mm-hmm. won't tell you what your credentials were. It'll tell you the, 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 the properties that were lost. So like your name, your email, your password, like all those, you know. Yeah, different, it just won't tell you. It won't tell you exactly where. what it is because then it would your, be. Your name, your email, your password. That would be very yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> then I would be typing in Brian's email. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that was service. Yeah. yeah. The service we were talking about was. But there's quite a number of services doing that now. Like, frankly, the big guys, the big cloud providers all scrub the darknet for those and all the base bins for those. Of course. They all um, reverse the passwords and then they go look through their cloud services to see if they match. Right. And that's and then they'll sell that to MSSPs as threat intel. So, uh, you know. You're at uh, my email address at blackarts.ca. Okay, right. So it will show you anytime blackarts.ca shows up in a password dump, and we'll share that over to you. There's actually quite a few firms that are doing that now, and some of them are more uh, specific about making sure you're from Blackarts than others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> selling stolen information. That's kind of it's it's heavily it's 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 really prevalent out there. Yeah, yes. it's kind of a gray, gray and it, area. It, it's not gray in this country, <laughs> but it is gray in many. And so mm-hmm. depending, depending on the jurisdiction you're under, you offering that service may or may not be illegal. And so you'll find actually a lot of the companies offering this service are not North American based. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yet, certainly there's legit reasons to do this. And certainly all the cloud providers go out and both buy the lists and scrub them themselves. And then when you get the email from them that says your credentials may have been compromised, that's how they know. Right? Interesting. So uh, your Gmail, your Hotmail, like all, all those type providers do the same thing. So it is fascinating space. It's Yeah. The thing that I think is most interesting that you talked about there is that these leaks happen. And then once the person has taken that data, it ultimately gets sold back to the company. So they're actually making a profit from the company that they've taken money for or taken credentials from. Which is an interesting. If it's the same com- same attacker, or if it's just like because very often they'll they'll trade leak and, and then they'll trade mm-hmm. and then they'll end up like so, somebody will eventually decide that this should like no longer be secret and then they'll put it into a paste bin or yep. or on a torrent and then like a bajillion other people get a copy and that's when it usually ends up in one of these people's hands who are collecting and then if it's reversible. <laughs> great like passwords stored in a reversible format is shockingly common mm-hmm. and then passwords yeah. that are, are are one-way hashed 
may or may not be salted. There's lots of ways to break MD5. those. <laughs> Anyways, we all know <laughs> just yeah. based on the DEFCON password challenge, <laughs> how quickly yep. they can break passwords. And so, um, and, and that's what all these companies do. It's reverse them out. And then you can, depending on who your audience is, just sell them to as a warning to the people who are in it or... You know, check your own cloud service to see if those email addresses and password combinations access your service and then go disable yeah. all those accounts or force password resets on those accounts. Yeah. Or you sell them to nation states. Like you can do a yeah, lot of different there's, things. There's, there's actually a surprising amount of, right? of stuff that, that happens. You know, that's just one use case, right? Um, selling it back to the company. Another use case that, that a lot of uh, criminal organizations do is, you know, why sell it back to the same company if, you know, the competitors will pay double, right? <laughs> yep. That's yep. a good point. Well, um, why not do both? Yeah, and don't tell not? them. It's virtual. <laughs> like, you can make 600 copies of yeah. this and sell them so, to 600 like, people. The the dark side of this, of this industry, they've got so many different avenues on how they monetize on this leaked data that it is staggering. Like, they could even trade on that information too. Like, if you have a persistent backdoor into a publicly traded company you could easily find out if that company is doing really well or really bad and not need to sell the data at all and just trade tell your trader fr friends that hey invest in this company or short or the stock short it right now right <laughs> and like, wait two weeks that is the persistent way on how to be a millionaire with be with having the the, the hacker skills of of you know being able to jump into any kind of web vulnerability right yep. that that's the amounts of ways that, that hackers can make money is, is just mind-blowing now these days and that's why the industry is just really trying its best to just keep up and secure these companies as best as they can like canada like i'm sorry it, it does suck because we we don't nearly invest in as much security as our neighbors from the south because i, I would say yeah we are inherently a little bit more trusting but uh if only people had their eyes open to like what's actually happening day to day on like Canadian soil, uh, I feel like that would actually change rapidly. It's just about getting that awareness out there. Right. And I don't believe Canada has any policy where if a corporation gets hacked, gets leaked, they have to tell their customers. I don't, some, some countries have instituted that if, if a breach happens and you know about so it. So starting you know, at the beginning of uh, this year, there was a digital privacy act, which expanded the disclosure quite a bit mm -hmm. and that kicked in yeah. november 1st 2018 was like the grace period was over and now you really do have to disclose oh good so yeah. it, you have a breach it has happened um yep. well how many days ago is that so uh, i'll let you know i guess when there's a, <laughs> like some precedent for not doing it which will probably take a number of months forward because uh, so far uh it, the digital privacy act falls under pipita it's really just an update to pipita and so you know, Pippet has always said you should take commercially reasonable protection uh, of the data, and there's not been a lot of teeth to it. Generally, failure to do so results in a strong finger wagging because because Canadian. Yeah, and a strongly so, worded letter. Yeah, so so we'll see how that actually lands. We'll and hopefully, if it change, if it affects consumer behavior, and people start to take an eye towards this. Do you see that happening or do you see people just hearing a lot of these leaks and then kind of starting to ignore them? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I can't think of pretty much anybody in this country who wouldn't have had their data leaked at least once. You know, anybody who has... Revenue Canada. <laughs> Revenue Canada. That's right. Bought Equifax. legal cannabis. <laughs> right? 4,500 people who did that in the first month. Yes. of the Canada Post. Um, Ashley Madison. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Equifax. Uh, I mentioned Starwood. Uh, heck, it was like 10 years since I've had it at least with for an infinity and i got a letter saying uh from nissan finance oh we lost all your data it was like 10 years later it's like oh thanks yeah. <laughs> like, you know so i i'd be surprised if there's anybody in this country who hasn't had their data lost at least once what are we doing about it nothing yeah, nothing. just <laughs> operating under the assumption that it's gone and then that's one of the parts that I that I think is a perk to living in Canada. Like there's tons of them, but this specifically is like regaining your identity after a breach is probably slightly easier here. Mm, interesting. I've never like. What's going through your head? Studies uh. for that to be done. <laughs> yeah, like I want to see the the numbers behind it. I want to see like the market research. But like I'm kind of on the fence of you know whether or not Canada is a little more lenient versus the states. I know that, um, you know, we've certainly been slow on disclosure laws, but yeah, but I don't just, know. I'm just trying to compare. I'm just trying to compare us to to our, our, our southern neighbors and mm-hmm. trying to take like let's take company A in Canada and company B in the states, both operating the same industry, both relatively the same size. Let's say they both get hacked at the same same day, same time, and disclosure for both of these hacks happen the exact same time. I I don't know. Like, I, would the American market and the consumers, you know, rage a little bit harder and cause that company to actually take some losses or at least a, a huge reputational hit? Or would the know. Canadians kind of just be more forgiving? Like, I don't know. I don't know. And that's also really difficult because you have to compensate for size of the country as well. So like a medium-sized business here is not a medium-sized business there. That's a right. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're like taking a 500 person company here and a 500 person company there, it's not comparable. And then I don't know how to make that equal to do a study. Yeah, I mean, as an industry, the bottom line is we have to get better at securing things. We have to get better at noticing when incidents happen because like I, I laughed when I read the Starwood announcement that said that they're working around the clock rapidly on this incident. And I'm like, what's the rush now? They've been there for four years. What's an extra few days? Was that <laughs> like, you in Canadian InfoSec, the Slack channel saying that? Like, like, you know, don't worry, finish a coffee with this time. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, um, but I think that's to almost cater to the consumer perspective that it's like people barged down the door yesterday and we're trying to usher them out. Like that's not the reality of things, right? These are people that have infiltrated and they've set up a secret bunker on the ninth floor that nobody sees. And they've just been there for years listening. Like apparently four, right? Yeah. But you know, it would be bad PR to say like, no, 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 we're just going to wait till dude comes back from vacation. (laughs) (laughs) That that just sounds bad, you know. Fair enough. (laughs) Working around the PR angle here. Yeah, working around the clock sounds so much better. Yeah, Yeah, it's all about the spin afterwards, right? (laughs) It's like we got breached, but free coffee. (laughs) That's the thing about security incidents is they always like to talk up the person who got in. Very sophisticated techniques. In in fairness, I could tell you what the average security professional's privacy is worth. Because at Sector 
you can come to the expo for $50, or if you're willing to give up all your information to the sponsors, you can come for free. And we're obtuse about making that clear to people. I have enough fingers to count the number of people who pay the $50. Wow. So I don't know exactly what people's privacy is worth, but it's less than 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I get in just because I get, I do talks. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's a good way. Paid for. <laughs> so we vigorously protect your privacy. <laughs> but, but for all those who opt into sharing, we share. Interesting. I, I think <laughs> it's, that's a, what's... it's a very obvious way for us to be very obvious and like comply with all the laws. You clearly have to opt in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly what the number is. I just know it's less than 50 is what how people value their privacy. <laughs> for anybody who can't see, there's lots of shaking heads at the table. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I just just uh, autopilot <laughs> shake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that's been the, the trend for a lot of, uh, for many years, is that people would rather have a free service and fine, take some compromises. I'm not really interested, Facebook's but it's about a pretty free. good example of that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of benefits to jumping on Facebook, right? Yeah. You get a lot out of being there, um, especially when it was new and getting more popular. All your friends were on there. You could look at events, you could see their travel photos um, and it didn't cost you a penny. And all you had to do was put your entire life on there. And, mm-hmm. and in fairness, like at least my personal view is I don't mind sharing some privacy as long as it's vigorously protected and I don't mind the fact that you send me ads that I'm actually interested in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, like you, you want to be um, like, only given uh, a choice between blue and, and red, but the whole car advertisement is exactly what you want, right? It's, it's got all the bells and whistles you've been looking for. And, and I definitely agree. Like there is some genuine human need out there for being given less options, but they're more tailored towards you. And people are willing to give up some privacy for that. Um, it's just that, that latter part of, you know, FYI, you're giving a lot of information here. Yeah. And, and if it's used as you tell me it's intended, then I can make that choice. It's when it's used beyond what was expressed. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I think the big problems lie, right? Because you as a grown up can decide I'd rather pay $50 and not have my information shared or, you know, um, they're going to use my information this way. I don't want it to be used that way. I'm not going to participate. But if somebody says, hey, we're only going to use it for this, and then suddenly it's uh, publicly available and used in entirely different ways, yeah. that's that's where it's, I think, yeah, so, very clearly crossing the line, right? So, okay, so raise your hand right now. If every single service you've subscribed to and used, you've read the terms and use and terms of conditions. The, the, so the, Raise your hand so here at no, the no, table. But, but the, the EULA example isn't necessarily uh, the layman's expectation, which is how at least the Canadian privacy is set up. And so the layman expectation when you post on Facebook is that it will be shared with all your friends. Right? Mm-hmm. The layman expectation isn't necessarily that it will suddenly become broadly publicly available. And so you don't necessarily need to read the EULA for there to be precedent on how the data should be treated, right? No, That's I, the whole thing behind GDPR. And, and so. Yeah. And those forms should definitely be reduced and put into a layman's sort of term or even an onboarding. Like you onboard for every application that you install for most web services and SaaS services that you, that you have. Why not take that opportunity to also go through with the customer how the data is collected, how it's used, who else has access to it. I mean, it's 
it's something that I feel like is going to happen soon, especially with like IoT and with uh, the general evolution of even cities too. Like you see cities being integrated with more IoT devices and you have mm-hmm. smart cities, smart buildings, smart cars. You know, the I kind of take from the, from the chapter of like uh, Google uh, with the Android device. You know, anytime an application wants to have access to your your, your contacts or your, your photos or wants to make phone calls, you have to literally explicitly say, yes, I will allow you to take that. Um, I feel like that model has resonated really well with certain uh, end users in the Android space um, and, and in the mobile space in general. Uh, and I feel like there's going to be that, that, that day where you're going to walk into a building and your phone's going to buzz and it's going to say, camera 4206, you know, located right above you, wants to have your permission to record you yes yes or no hmm. or uh you're walking down the street and uh you know just a whole bunch of devices just start popping up and wanting to communicate and, and interact with you and you either have to say yes or no on your on your phone and that's that's one way that i can see you know the application space like explicit consent yeah explicitly hmm. consenting right to... oh we know how user account control worked in the first version of Windows. that's right yeah. <laughs> it's a work in progress that to security, the rest of my life is a work in progress. I'm, I'm sort of thinking like certificate errors and... <laughs> oh yeah so, back to that just as you're describing no. that I, I was thinking UAC and Vista like <laughs> oh god every little Sorry. thing that, that's yeah, what no, happened I, I, in I, I my head <laughs> leave me alone (laughs) that was another tangent (laughs) that was a fun one yeah it was (laughs) and that's the thing right striking that balance where to strike that balance because you you get asked do you want this app to use the camera but you don't get asked is this app allowed to read from the sd card you know because that's too granular yeah and well I, i don't necessarily think that's a perfect solution because I'm trying to think of a really good example recently where like I wouldn't necessarily want this app to have access to the camera most of the time, but for this one function, for this one moment, I did. And then I have to remember to actually go take it away again after. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, there's, yeah, there's different ways. Like it could be like a time base, like for the next hour. Yeah. Sure. But then we really go down the UAC road. <laughs> so, yeah. like, for sure. You, you and, know, it's, and, it's not necessarily yeah, like, and it's, it's, simple. It's definitely not going to work for, for the masses, but... Uh, it's going to be a way for people to better control their data. Or at least their, their better understand when yeah. and where it's being used. Mm-hmm. I feel like even if we made strides, like right now, you can turn off location services, which I think is awesome just by itself. Like one little button that basically yeah. says, I'm and, turning until on Until I want to get here the most efficient route. Yeah. Until <laughs> I want you to actually do something, I'm going to turn it off and then just leave it off. I think if we had something similar for like the major functions for like camera and microphone and stuff like that like the most invasive yeah the most invasive stuff like okay you're going to turn the camera on when you're accepting a call like and then you're going to turn it back off right those types of things i think are a little bit obvious and a little bit like okay we can totally do this as a button Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's actually a really good implementation (laughs) they should implement that (laughs) right i think though that would be like stupid easy really like useful and almost immediately like cut off tons and tons of avenues for random stuff like that location services button i was like yes you finally put one like thing where i could just turn it off yeah yeah i agree that that would be nice for both the camera and uh, the mic right yeah the Mm -hmm. only time i want the camera on is 
like I accept like a Skype call. And the only time I want the microphone on is when I pick up a phone call. And then otherwise, like leave it off unless I toggle it on. You're telling me I don't have to crack open this baby every single time and physically remove the microphone and yeah. camera module? Where's my hardware disconnect <laughs> yeah, for exactly. my phone? <laughs> I want the kill switch. <laughs> right. Although now that like manufacturer is actually putting in like the camera slidey thing. Like the new Lenovo's actually have a camera a camera slider thing oh, built wow. into the machine. I'm telling you, capitalism. It's gonna, it's gonna like, change the basic this. security. Yeah, there this. you go. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, of course, um, they're still never going to provide an Android update for oh, it. And, and Lenovo is still going to ship well, with a ton know. of adware and a bunch of yeah. bloatware too. Like, One matter of time, time <laughs> right? People are actually people are actually buying the slidey thing, and Lenovo is like, "Okay, we're going to put a slidey thing." And I'm like, "Okay, that that, that is clever. Is actually really cool. Put that in and Quickly. make sure that's where you stop. No more root certificates on my Windows machine. <laughs> uh, well, that's a totally different story. Yeah. Who was the the latest one? I'm forgetting who it was now. There was another root certificate uh, crusade. Or... Uh, there was a, something to do with a headphone software. A headphone yes. management software that installed a, 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 like a root cert on your, on your computer. Yes. I didn't go more into it, but I was like, why? Yeah. Why is that needed? Because they wanted to self-sign and because they want to self-sign and save money. I, guess. I don't know I don't what know. the <laughs> headphone or the audio company was, but it was some sort of headphone audio management software. Wow, yes, it was dodgy. like the drivers like, for for headphones. Yeah, like I, I missed the old days when all you needed was a headphone jack. Like, come on, people don't want that. They want to get up and warm up pizza this pockets. This from in the their person kitchen. who was like, "I want the first IoT pillow." I'm sorry. No, it was a joke. I was saying. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I want my my. Headphones have the RGB light up with my customization lighting, so I need to install this software. Yeah. Root cert, let's do it. Come on, I trust you. <laughs> do you guys have, when you install a new system, do you go into the root certs and clear away some of them? I, I haven't, have you? I'll, I'll look through them. Um, sometimes I will actually go through like my entire computer and just just break stuff. Just intentionally remove features turn off stuff from from my phone and i'll see how far can i get along without something screaming at me and uh you know i'll, I'll do that maybe like a, a purge or a cleanse like every year uh, and that's both phone and, and computer but it's just a kind of like a sense of mind thing that i'll do it's just, I'm just a paranoid man so yeah just get rid of as much as you can yeah like i'll, I'll just constantly uh, it's almost like a spring cleaning my machine very often because it's so easy and everything that i actually care about is cloud-based you do what pardon me just rebuild the machine on a semi-regular basis because it's so easy to flatten a machine new os key apps so you treat your workstations like cattle not like pets yeah like like there's nothing on my device that i can't have back with you know a little bit of time to rebuild a brand new machine and that's fair. We can argue about the safety of data in cloud. If it's really safe, like needs safety, you can encrypt it before you put it there. Everything that I have there is MFA. So that's it. Data's there. <laughs> I don't have to worry about backup. And Good to go. What's on the machine can easily be reinstalled. Like, so if I lose this, wipe it. Like, there's nothing in my life that mm. is device centric. Oh, no, that's definitely not true with my phone because I don't back a lot of stuff up to yeah. the cloud. So I probably should. Yeah, I'm I mean, a lot it's all more like 365 kind of stuff, and it's there. It syncs across all my things. 
<laughs> right, everyone, thanks for being here. Um, Brian, where can people reach out to you? You can best reach me at brian at task.to. Uh, best way is nick at dc416.com. Uh, for me, it's ophelia.chan at oasp.org um, or oasp.com. But like really just Google the OASP Toronto meetup and you'll find the meetup channel itself. It's easier than trying to remember how to spell my name. Actually, that's, that's fair. All of these will be in the show notes. So, And if people want to follow you, do you guys have a Twitter or a presence like that? Not that I necessarily no. want to promote. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Seriously. And then all of us are actually part of our own chapter meetings, right? So you physically show up and you can be like, hi, Brian. Yeah. That is the best way to get a hold of all of you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just it's like up. there's no escape. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no like I didn't get your email. There's no nothing else. It's like I'm here physically in front of you. That is actually the easiest way. Yeah, yeah it is. Like I'm guaranteed yeah. to be there. You're guaranteed to have about five minutes of my time at least. Yeah. Yep. And I'll definitely link the next events that you, your guys' communities are putting on in the show notes so people can come out if they're interested. Awesome. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, Nick, and Ophi for being on the podcast. Each one of my guests today hosts a monthly event right here in Toronto. I've personally learned a ton from these events, so I highly recommend you check them out. I've added links to their upcoming events in the episode notes. You can connect with this podcast on Twitter at TO Tech Podcast or on our website at torontotechpodcast.ca. Today's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is a song by Side Hustle called Nepal. Thank you for listening. I want to see you.